the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Check out monorail.com, America's affordable investment app made for conservatives who want to keep their hard-earned money with companies that share their value. Download the Monorail app today. Join Monorail. Portions of the following program may contain pre-recorded material. are listening to the best of the Dennis Prager Show. All right, everybody, you're listening to the Dennis Prager Show. I thank you for doing so. And while there is a lot in the news that I want to talk to you about, I want to talk first to uh, Mitchell Zukoff, who is a professor at Boston University, a professor of journalism, who has written a book about something that has always fascinated me, and I suspect I'm not alone. I, I suspect that 98.423% of you listening has heard of the, the idea of, or the nonsense of, or whatever you wish to call or, or the evil of, a Ponzi scheme, where uh, people uh, pay in money, some get more money, but eventually a lot of people lose all their money. Well, it's actually named after somebody. It, there was a guy, Ponzi, and Charles Ponzi is the guy who developed this, and Mitchell Zukoff of Boston University has written the true story of a financial legend, Ponzi. This is Dennis Prager, and welcome to the program. Dennis, thank you. Hi, thank you. It is, uh, uh, as soon as I saw this book was written, I knew that I had to have you on. Every, it, I don't know if there is anybody who has a financial anything named after him that is as famous or infamous as Ponzi. Even Capone didn't get, uh, yeah. a, you know, a, a submachine gun named after him. That's <laughs> that, right. That, yes, I mean, when you think, I can't, I cannot think of of a parallel. This uh, this this Ponzi fascinates. I guess I don't think he fascinates people. They don't even think of him. Mm. When, in fact, I didn't know it was named after a guy. So I, I assume that I'm I'm in the majority in that way. We all heard of the scheme, Absolutely. but we don't know the guy. You know, it's funny. I, th- I think you were right when you said 98.423% had heard of Ponzi schemes. I think the, the other half of that equation is that 1.577 actually knew about Charles Ponzi. Oh, right. And you're one of them. Hmm. Why did you write this book? But for that very reason. You know, I, I was a journalist for a long time at the Boston, Boston Globe. And to tell stories that people didn't know has always been a passion of mine. And the fact that, that there was this Charles Ponzi, I was a banking reporter in Boston when banks were failing left and right. And someone said to me, out of the blue, you know, banks haven't failed like this since the days of Ponzi. And when I heard uh, Ponzi, like in the scheme, and I said, yeah, he was a Boston guy. Uh-oh. And it set me down the path. 
You know what you just said, you like stories. What did you say of the unknown, or what was the word you stories used? Stories that haven't been told. That's stories it. That... Do you know I have found doing this program, those are my favorite interviews, mm. the stories that have not been told. I had a, I had a, an author on about the the one gold coin that's a, a double eagle. From... The, the eagle book, yes. Yes. I, I mm-hmm. tell you. I sat, I sat at the microphone, riveted for an hour. I, I, I could not believe, and how much you learn about about history, not just about that unknown item. Yes. And so uh, I, I believe, and I, I don't let you, believe me. I'm going to let you talk, but I, I, I just have okay. to tell you and my listeners, I think the best way to learn history is through the micro, not you know, a history of America in the 1920s may be wonderful. But if you take one person in the 1920s, you may learn more. I couldn't agree more. And, and in fact, that is such an important way to look at, at, at this book, and I think at a lot of books like this, narrative histories, where you know, Ponzi couldn't have existed at any other time. You have, you know, World War I is over, prohibition is in effect, the stock market's revving up, you've got immigration, you know, people pouring into our shores, You've got, you know, the U.S. population for the first time ever has become more city-fied, more urban than rural. Women have just gotten the right to vote. There's a tremendous amount of change going on, tremendous uncertainty, and that is all the backdrop. That You could write a book about each one of those items I just mentioned, but if you see it through the prism of Ponzi's scheme and how this guy could possibly operate like this and rake in millions upon millions of dollars in such a short time, it all comes together. What year was it? 1920. And the war, let's put everything in context. The war is over in 19. Yep. Uh Just over. People are expecting the post-war prosperity. So there is an optimism in the air. Precisely. All right. That's the the mood of the country is optimistic, even though we've lost so many men. Yes. Uh, We've just fought a war. And economically, how is the country doing in 1920? People are still waiting for the post-war bounce, the, the big pickup after the war that people had been expecting and people had been promised. And it wasn't quite coming yet. The stock market is just starting to rev up. It'll really be later in the 20s when the real craziness starts in the market. Um, but, you know, the optimism, though, is mixed with a lot of uncertainty. We've got the Red Scare going on. We've got a tremendous fear that with all these new immigrants, are going to bring in new ideas, whether it's communism or whether it's uh, socialism, fascism. And so while there's optimism and there's a lot of hopefulness and a lot of expectation, there's also uncertainty. And that is the perfect climate into which you can inject a scheme like this. Now, who is Charles Ponzi before uh, the scheme? Charles Ponzi was an Italian immigrant. He was born to an aristocratic family in a town called Lugo, Italy, in 1882. He squandered his small inheritance when he was partying, when he should have been studying at the University of Rome. And his family said, go to America, make your fortune there. Bright young man like you, handsome, charming, uh, dapper, a good dresser. He washes up on the shores of Boston in 1903. And how old? He's 21 years old. Mm-hmm. Spends the next 15 years searching for riches, bouncing up and down the East Coast, out to, uh, to the Midwest a little bit, having amazing heroic adventures, including saving a woman's life by donating his own skin when she's burned in a horrible accident. A stranger or someone he knew? A stranger. 
Really? Who was working in a mining camp as a nurse where he was also working. And he was friendly with a doctor there. And the doctor was, was in, in Ponzi's tent one night talking about how terrible it was that Rose was likely to die. And in fact, excuse me, Pearl was likely to die, Pearl Gossett. And Ponzi said, well, what's the problem? Well, I have no one who's willing to donate skin to save her. She was horribly burned in this kerosene explosion. And Ponzi said, take all you need. And the rest of his life, he spent with enormous swaths, uh, uh, scars, symmetrical scars on his back and on the back of his legs where the doctor had taken off chunks of skin. That's, an, that's a remarkable act. You know, this, one of the reasons this fascinates me is I talk a great deal on my program about good and evil mm. and uh, how people have moral bank accounts. Mm-hmm. And in assessing Ponzi... And I don't know the damage he did yet, so you know we're not ready to make a judgment. I may not even make one, but I, I, you know, it's not—it's not all I do in life. But, but it is very important to put the man, not the scheme, but the man into context. That is—that is a very rare act of a human, and in those days, it's had to have been painful. I mean, I'm sure it's painful today, but but it must have been particularly painful then. Absolutely, he scarred his body. He suffered from pleurisy after it, it nearly killed him. He was laid up in bed for weeks and weeks after that. Did it save the woman? It saved her life. How did she feel toward him? Uh, you know, enormously grateful. She, you know, she knew that she would not be alive were it not for him. And uh, the, the townspeople were you know, gathered around and nominated him for a heroism award. Wow. And so, so, you know, when you hear the name Ponzi, or you hear a Ponzi scheme, it's immediately you have, when you talk about good and evil, people have a, a one-dimensional sense of, of mm-hmm. it. oh, this is a schemer, this is a bad guy. And sometimes, as you said, it's much more complex, and that's, that makes it more interesting to me, that he wasn't pure evil. He was a dreamer. Yes, he was a schemer, but he had this complexity and this moral complexity that really showed up in the, in the incident with Pearl Gossett. All right, so well, that is that is a very powerful story. Now, what is he doing for a living prior to the scheme? You name it, he's working as a road drummer, which is you know working on road crews. He's working as a waiter. He's working um, in a mining camp as a male nurse. He's just sort of keeping body and soul together. Well, then it sounds to me like he he's not doing much better here than had he stayed with his aristocratic family back in Italy. Exactly. In fact, he probably could have gotten himself a clerkship somewhere in an office in Italy, even just with three years of, of college education. But once he came here, he was so determined to live up to his mother's expectations. She had sent him here. He, his father had died when he was young, and she had such tremendous confidence in him. She spent his youth, in his words, building castles in the air about what a glorious future I would have. But once he went to America, he felt as though he could not go back to Italy uh-huh. in shame. And you know, so, you never want to disappoint your mom. <laughs> that's right. It's just the way that's it is. True. I will be back. I am very interested. If anybody listening has suffered from a Ponzi scheme or has been in, involved in any, 1-8 Prager 776 Mitchell Zukoff. The book is Ponzi's Scheme, The True Story of a Financial Legend. You're listening to the Dennis Prager Show, 1-8 Prager 777.
You are listening to the best of the Dennis Prager Show. This is the way to learn history, my friends. You're listening to the Dennis Prager Show. My guest is Mitchell Zukoff, and though he is a professor of journalism, I do not want you to hold it against him. <laughs> you don't know how true that is, Professor Zukoff. I, I do. Okay, fine. <laughs> you do. <laughs> Welcome to the program, and those of you in the uh, Boston area can hear, uh, you can tell your relatives, friends, and enemies you're on WTTT right now. I will. Mitchell Zukoff has written Ponzi's Scheme, and it is the true story of a financial legend. Uh, we were deluged with calls, you might uh, be interested mm. to know, uh, all saying the same thing. When I asked, have you ever been uh, involved in or a victim of a Ponzi scheme? Uh, immediately all lights lit up and said Social Security. Ah, yes. What do you think of that? Well, you know, it does have certain things in common, absolutely. You have early, you know, the, the, the nature of a Ponzi scheme is that early investors are paid off with the money of later investors. Right. There's, no, there's nothing underpinning it. And so certainly Social Security, uh, current people who are paying in are just paying in to the retirees now collecting. So in that sense, yes, it has the same model. One thing I would say, it makes it clearly different, is that there's no trick to it. Nobody is claiming that it's anything but that. And so, uh, you know, the difference in a real... Oh, that's a good... That, no, that's very good. It's a uh, eyes-opened Ponzi exactly. scheme. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. You know, nobody's pretending that, that we're really investing that money or keeping uh, it in a lockbox or, or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's straightforward. Early investors are being paid with money from later investors. So, yes, the model fits. The trick, again, in a real Ponzi scheme is that people are misled that it's something else going on, that we're right. really investing in some great All right. So, so let, let's go back, and we'll take calls here. one prager 776 uh, Here, I, I, well, well for, let's take a couple right now, in fact. In sure. uh, Forest Park, uh, Illinois, W-I-N-D, James. Hello, James. Dennis Prager and Mitchell Zukoff. I came up with the same comment. It's Social Security. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's it's only going to work as long as we've got enough people paying in to cover the retirees. Right. So, how do you uh, uh, do? You accept uh, Professor Zukov's statement that at least our it's not being portrayed as anything else. Well, you know, at various times, politicians have said, "Oh, we're putting it in the Social Security lockbox." But yeah. I, I guess pretty much everybody does know what it is. Right. There's no lockbox for it in a Ponzi scheme, is there, Professor? There is not. No, that's the whole point, yeah. I guess. <laughs> Tyler, uh, Tyler, Texas, uh, Cliff on Case Guy. Hello, Cliff. Dennis Prager, Mitchell Zukov. Uh, good morning, Dennis. Hi. Hi. Uh, I guess you want some background on, on the scheme that I was <laughs> taken in. Yeah, if you, if you could do it quickly, sure. Yes, it was uh, a company called Mobile Billboards. And uh, they was structured so that an investor purchased a billboard frame from them and simultaneously would enter into a leaseback agreement with Outdoor Media Company, which is part of the lawsuit. And they would receive a lease payment equivalent to about 13% annually. So what was going on then, they would sell these, and they sold about $60.5 million uh, of these systems before they were shut down by the Securities Exchange Commission. So because all the money they would rake in was from the next buyer. Right. 
Yeah, well, that, so that that's a good example, that's I it. guess. Billboard, yeah, I've heard of the billboard scheme. Yep. You have? Oh, oh sure. that's very interesting. They're, they're, they, they take every variety. You can you, you name the product, and somebody's tried to turn it into a Ponzi scheme, I believe. All right. The billboard l- l- is l- one l- that we have seen. Yep. All right. Well, we'll talk about some of the, the better-known schemes later. Let's first go back to Ponzi. Right now, yep. Ponzi, if I had met Ponzi... In 19, uh, when did the scheme happen again? 20 what? He got the idea in 1919 and 1920 is when it really took off. All right. So had I met him, though, uh, in 1915, I'd have thought this is a, 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 a an altruistic, mm-hmm. indeed heroic man who, like so many others, wants to make his way as an immigrant in America. You would, with a couple of small exceptions. One thing I didn't tell you is that, although he was having this heroic adventure, he also had some misadventures during those same years when he was bouncing around. Yeah. One was up in Montreal. He was working in a bank, and believe it or not, the banker who ran the place was engaged in some version of the Ponzi scheme of robbing Peter to pay Paul. Now, Ponzi wasn't involved, but when it all collapsed, Ponzi needed to get out of there fast because he thought he'd be swept up in it, he forged a check, and he ended up serving some prison time oh, up there. in Canada. In Canada, in Montreal. Huh. So, and then on his way out, he tried to make some money. When he was, he was allowed to cross over the border back into the United States, he brought some Italian immigrants with him who were undocumented, and he got nabbed by immigration for illegal immigration. And he spent some more time in prison, this time down in Atlanta. So he's a real mixed bag. Nothing he did in those two incidents. No, exactly. Well, they were you know, not nearly as evil as the skin he gave precisely. was good. Exactly. So, so far he has a moral bank account with Prager anyway. Okay, good. All I right. agree. Uh, I think, that, I think that's, a, that's a good accounting. All right, fair enough. So uh, we're up now to uh, 1919. The war is ending or over, and uh, he is not really moving uh, in a direction that would bring his mother back in Italy pride. Exactly. Okay, go then, on. There's truly a eureka moment. He had been writing to people over in, in Europe looking for ideas, business schemes, business plans, not just schemes, but legitimate businesses. And in one of the letters that was sent back to him, a little piece of paper fluttered out of the envelope. And it was something called an international reply coupon. It was, it was a really unusual, really mundane um, form of international currency. Right, I remember it. I used to send it to radio stations. Okay. Yep. Exactly. It basically was a way to send a self-addressed stamp envelope overseas mm-hmm. so that one post office would recognize this currency. You could buy a stamp with it in any country in the world. Right. Ponzi recognized that after World War I, currencies around the world were depreciated, had been devalued by the war. So the same IRC, the same postal coupon you'd buy in one country at one value, conceivably was worth a different amount and more in another country. It, it, this is arbitrage. This was currency exchange. This was, believe it or not, both legal and theoretically possible, that if you could buy an enormous amount of these things, these postage stamps, if you will, in one country and sell them in another country where they were worth more, you could become rich. Why would they be worth more in another country? Because they had not, their values had not been adjusted to reflect the depreciated currencies of European economies. So, uh, in they, you could buy, let's say, five for a dollar in Boston, and in Barcelona, you could buy twenty for a dollar. 
because the Barcelona, the Italian currency, was so devalued. Oh, I see. So, no well, all right, that's perfectly legal. That's called speculating. Exactly. People okay. do it. Hey, there are currency traders on Wall Street doing it today. That's how uh, Soros made his money. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. So, Ponzi realizes, wait a second, this is great. All I need, though, is money to get started. I have to go invest money to make money. He goes to a bank. He had no credit. He had. He had okay, hold on. All right. Uh, no, no, don't be sorry. You're leaving me in, uh, in suspense here. 1 8 Prager 776, the book Ponzi's Scheme, Mitchell Zukoff. And uh, we'll return in a moment how the scheme develops. MyPillow is excited to bring you their biggest bedding sale ever and just in time for Christmas. For a limited time, get the Giza Dream Bed Sheets for as low as $29.98, a set of pillowcases for only $9.98, and rejuvenate your bed with a MyPillow mattress topper for as low as $99.99. They also have blankets in a variety of sizes, colors, and styles. They even have blankets for your pets. Get duvets, quilts, down comforters, body pillows, bolster pillows, and so much more, all with the biggest discounts of the year happening now. They're also extending their money-back guarantee for Christmas until March 1st, 2023, making them the perfect gifts for your friends, your family, and everyone you know. So go to MyPillow.com and use the promo code Prager, or call 800-761-6302. You'll get huge discounts on all MyPillow bedding products, including the Giza Dream bed sheets for as low as $29.98, and get all your shopping done now while quantities last. You are listening to the best of the Dennis Prager Show. Dennis Prager here. And, boy, am I waiting to hear how this happens. Ponzi Scheme, the biography of Charles Ponzi, the guy who invented the Ponzi Scheme, and we're not talking about Social Security because all of you called in on that immediately. The a true story of a financial legend. All right, we're in 1919, Ponzi, just to summarize for those who uh, either don't have good memories or just tuned in, Ponzi's an immigrant from Italy, uh, is both a heroic man, literally gave blocks of skin from his body to a a woman that he was, you know, wasn't even involved with, just a woman who had been burned and needed to live getting skin, and yet got in trouble uh, with some little financial uh, bad things also smuggling some Italian immigrants in from Canada. It's now 1919. Is this now after the war? Just after the war, yes. All righty, go ahead. So he has discovered that uh, you can make money with international reply coupons, which is legal. Yes. Go ahead. But he doesn't have the money. It takes money to make money. He's going to need some kind of bankroll to go and buy these international reply coupons and bring them back here and figure out how to make the logistics work. So he goes to a local bank, and the bank just about laughs him out the door. He's got no credit. He, he, won't, he doesn't want to reveal his plan to them because he thinks they'll steal it. So he goes around, tries to borrow money from other places. No luck. So he decides, I've got to go to my, the public. I've got to take my idea 
out and offer people tremendous profits. I'll share these profits, but they need to give me the seed money. So I, so he offers, he opens up a little storefront, not a real storefront, a little office in downtown Boston on School Street, right around the corner from Boston City Hall, and basically hangs out a shingle calling himself the Securities and Exchange Company. This is before the SEC exists. Only in America. Only in America. Yeah. And that's what he's thinking. Only in yep. America. The SEC isn't even around yet. Right. So he gets the name. Okay. He had it first. So people start slowly dribbling in and because he's offering such amazing profits. He will increase. He'll give you 50% interest in 45 days. 50. 50. 5 Now, this is a time it was, the banks were paying what they are now, a few percent a year. So people tentatively started giving him money, a few, a few. And when the time came for them to redeem their coupons, to redeem their certificates, he was ready to pay with money from later investors because he still hadn't figured out the logistics of his plan. He offered to give them their money back, but what he did was said, of course, here's your money. But, if, of course, if you want to invest again, you can double it, you know, again, you, know you can keep... Oh, uh, well, of course. People think, of, oh, my God, look, I could obviously uh, get 50% more, but why not do it again? Okay. Take another spin of the wheel. Right. So they did. And money starts pouring in. And Ponzi gets a little nervous. He's really still trying to figure uh, it of out. Of course. I was just going to ask you that. How does the guy sleep at night? Go ahead. He, You know, he, he found a way. He kept trying to figure out, how do I make this work? And it became really apparent to him that there was no way. To possibly, if I calculated once, just his first 18 investors, if he had been able to get enough coupons to pay them off, it would have been a stack 21 feet high. Now, once he had thousands of investors, you'd have to have basically fill the Titanic with oh, these coupons. Oh, I feel, I, I'm starting to feel bad for him. It's, you know, you can see it, the train is on the tracks. and it's So just, you don't think he's going to bed every night just, uh, you know... Um laughing at the public. I know he's not for this reason. Right around this time, he starts being treated for ulcers. It's uh, getting to him. He wants to succeed. He has married. Part of what's driving him now is not just the, the love of his mother and wanting to satisfy her. He marries this beautiful young Italian-American girl, Rose Ganeco. Her father owned a little fruit stand here in Boston. And he. And all Rose wants is a, a little house with a nice family, a picket fence, and, and, her, and her Charles. But he wants her dripping in diamonds and bathed in furs. And so he wants to make her rich, and he wants to satisfy her beyond her wildest dreams. Does he have any children at this time? Not yet. Okay. They've just been married. She, he wanted to how old? How old is he now? He is now 37. And she's 21. She's 21. Okay. And they're, they've settled in a nice little apartment in a, in a suburb, and she just wants to have the babies. But he's saying, wait, wait till I'm a success. And things start taking off. And suddenly the money's pouring in. And he says, let's go buy a big house. And they bought a beautiful mansion in the, in the uh, suburban village of, of Lexington. where we have uh, Lexington You don't Congress. know. My heart is breaking. <laughs> it, it, yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it is. I, I, I'm it living is. this thing. Yes. All right. Hold on. We'll be back in a moment. Ponzi's scheme. This is the way to learn history, in my opinion. Mitchell Zukoff and Dennis Prager, 1-8 Prager 776.
portions of the following program may contain pre-recorded material. You are listening to the best of the Dennis Prager Show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Dennis Prager Show, where we do talk about everything in life, and this will be an example. In these, are we in the dog days of summer? I know I ask this every year. I don't know, Sirius out there, that's the constellation that makes a Sirius is a dog, and that, you all explain it to me every year. But in these days of summer, I like to explore things that perhaps during more intensely news-intense times, to be redundant, we can't get to. So here's a perfect example. Welcome to the program once more. My guest is a professor at the, the uh, university. You are at the University of Texas, is that correct, Professor? That's correct, Dennis, yes. Yeah, the only reason I ask is because I see that I'm speaking to you from New Hope, Pennsylvania. That is also correct, yeah. So you, you commute <laughs> you commute every day. Uh, I do, yes. Right. Uh, it's about a 27-hour commute. Yes, but, uh, exactly. <laughs> That's great. You're dedicated to your work. I very much do. Yes, yeah. exactly. Professor David Oshinsky of the University of Texas at Austin. And he is a historian who has written an account of something, frankly, folks, I know virtually nothing about. And I don't say that with any pride, but it gives me a a good way of asking questions that may reflect a good part of the audience who also don't know much about this. But it is one of the epic stories of American history, and that is the conquering of a disease that frightened Americans. Is it fair to say that polio frightened Americans? as more or as much as AIDS does today? I think in some ways, Dennis, it frightened Americans more because it was largely a child disease, um, and, and it really it focused on kids. And the other thing about polio that was um, different was that there was no prevention and no cure. It didn't matter what steps a parent took to try to protect the child. There was no guarantee the kid wouldn't get it. That's anything. right. What a good point. It's, you see, AIDS is behaviorally induced. That is right. But but polio was a lottery. Polio was a complete lottery uh, to the point where parents were absolutely panicked. They wouldn't put their kids into swimming pools. It would it would come like a plague every summer. And uh, Every were, summer? Every single summer. Right? Well, why was it related to the summer? We really don't know. There are a lot of things about polio we don't know. It was an intestinal disease, meaning that it came through the mouth into the digestive system and then into the nervous system. And the belief was that the higher the temperatures, the more likely this intestinal disease was to explode. So you would have tremendous outbreaks in June, July, August, and then they would fade. And for the rest of the year, there'd be no polio, and then the plague would descend again the next summer. Wow. What a frightening thing for parents to know, here comes summer, normally associated with the happiest time in a kid's life, and will my kid be one of the kids who ends up with polio? That, that is exactly the case. My, I mean, I, I grew up uh, as a, a, a very young kid in the era before the polio vaccine, and each summer, you know, the, the newspapers would literally print box scores, like baseball box scores, of the number of kids who got polio. Um, you'd be kept out of movie theaters. You'd be kept out of any kind of crowd. Uh, you weren't allowed to go swimming. Uh, my parents uh, basically told me not to play with other kids. 
because they had the uh, you know the germs of my friends, but not not of strangers. It, it was a real panic that would descend. Each you time. had there's a picture in your book, and the book is Polio: An American Story. You have a picture, and there are riveting photos in it of a of a sign on a tree: "Children under 16 not allowed to enter this town." That is right. Entire towns would quarantine visitors. And they would literally bring the state police or the local police, in some cases the National Guard, um, and no children were allowed into that town during these these uh, years. It, it, it was it was absolutely extraordinary. And the other thing, Dennis, is that polio is a very visual disease. And by that I mean that you know kids who had it wore leg braces, um, they were on crutches, they were paralyzed, they were often in iron lungs. These monstrous contraptions that would allow you to breathe if the if the polio virus entered your uh, uh, your breathing cavity so that it wasn't the kind of thing where a kid could walk into a restaurant and you would not know whether the kid had it you knew and everybody knew someone who was you know on crutches in leg braces had died from the disease was in an iron lung it, it was it was a tremendously visual and and horrific disease was it in fact contagious it was it wasn't contagious in the way that smallpox is contagious. In other words, most people, most kids would actually get a very mild case of polio. It was kind of like the stomach flu. They might not even know they had it. And then they would build up a lifetime of antibodies. But in about one in a hundred cases, uh, the, uh, the virus would enter the central nervous system and the nerves would be paralyzed. And therefore, you know, in the, in the big years, like about 1952, uh, about 50,000 kids a year would come down with polio. Half would be seriously paralytic and paralyze them for life, and a small percentage of them would die. But over the years, if you're talking about 25,000 kids getting it every year, you know, that's 250,000 kids in 10 years. Um, you begin to see a very large percentage of the population having it. Was this always around humanity, or did it have a beginning? That is really the $64 question. Polio, the virus was always out there, and it was endemic. It was there. But the major epidemics of polio occurred in the 20th century in largely Western countries like the United States, Canada, Great Britain. And there really is the sense that polio, ironically, was a disease of cleanliness. In other words, the more antiseptic societies became, the less likely kids were to be exposed to polio virus at a very young age when they'd have maternal antibodies and when the disease was less powerful. Wait, I'm, I'm not understanding. The more clean the society, that is right. the, the less polio or the uh, more the, polio? The more clean the society, the more polio. Okay. Well, well, that's, that's, that's fascinating. It, it really is. Dennis. You know the way everybody is germophobic today and yes. clean down every... Yes every aspect of your bathroom and your kitchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What you're doing, in a way, is doing away with the kind of germs that, to some degree, will, if you get them at a very young age and you're exposed to them, will give you a lifetime of immunity. In other words, dirt and disease don't always go together. At times, in, you know, you know terrible ghettos and awful places with, with great filth, kids will build up tremendous immunity to many types of disease. And sometimes when you begin to clean up and clean up and clean up, there are certain diseases 
where <laughs> if you were exposed to these diseases at a very young age, <laughs> you would get a minor case and then a lifetime of immunity. In the case of polio, kids were getting it you know, at an older and older age, and at that point they had no immunity. So did the, no more, the, the, the more affluent? Yes, exactly. Oh, wow. Yes, pol- the, the, the irony of polio, Dennis, was that more affluent communities tended to be at harder in the United States. Because they were cleaner. That is right. So when my 12-year-old uh, won't take a shower, <laughs> uh, he is actually, he has a new argument. Dad, has, I am developing antibodies. Yes, uh, yes. I, it, I wouldn't push that too far. Well, and I, I think yeah. showers are good. But, yes. um, you know, there are certain cases where, in, in the case of certain diseases, you are basically wiping out any sort of immunity as you, as you do away with the, the virus itself. Did President Roosevelt, was it, is it definite that he had polio? There are theories. It's pretty definite. Okay. Polio. So yeah. now, now, how did it affect him? He was paralyzed from the waist down. What exactly was the effect on him? That's an interesting case. In 1921, at the age of 39, Roosevelt got polio, and it's very rare that someone of that age and of yes. that class would get polio. But he did. Now, I have theories in the book as as why this happened. He was under tremendous stress. His immune system was way down. He had visited a Boy Scout camp um, and then gone on to some frenetic activity after that, which I think lowered his immune system even more. But he got polio, and he got a very serious case and almost died. And he was paralyzed from his waist down for the rest of his life. He was always seeking the cure. He was all, you know, he'd go to Warm Springs, Georgia. And we have no cure. There is no cure for polio. That is correct. There is a prevention right, of to course. terrific vaccines. And Roosevelt spent the rest of his life trying to find a cure for polio, not only for himself but for others. And he was really the man who started the Great March of Dimes, the great, probably the greatest voluntary philanthropy in our history. You know, this is, I, I feel terrible about my own knowledge that I did not know how old Roosevelt was. I mm-hmm. was sure he had it from a younger age. No, he didn't. He, he got it. He got it all That is middle so age. interesting, as is so much more. We're gonna, we will continue. If any of you have any questions, the book is Polio, an American Story, and why it's an American story is one of the questions I will have for Professor David Oshinsky of the University of Texas, 18-PRAGER-776, 18-P-R-A-G-E-R-776. How did they develop, develop a vaccine? Coming up on the Dennis Prager Show. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. 
You are listening to the best of the Dennis Prager Show. An absolutely riveting story. Polio, an American story, is the book. David Oshinsky, professor of history at the University of Texas at Austin, is the author and is on the line with me. I've already learned so much that it is, it's, it's truly uh, remarkable. Folks, every summer, Americans feared for their children, especially the more affluent because they were cleaner, and the more antiseptic the home, the greater the likelihood of their child contracting polio. At its height, how many would get it a year? Uh, 1952 was the worst year, and about 55,000 kids got it, um, of whom about half were permanently and fully paralyzed, and about 10% of whom died. And the and the other 40%, what would be with them? They would actually, Dennis, they would undergo all kinds of rehabilitation. It was done generally through the March of Dimes, which was this incredibly wonderful voluntary organization, and they would have all kinds of, you know, muscle work and they you know work with these kids and basically bring them back to health but there was no rhyme or reason why kid a would be paralyzed and kid b would would be nursed back to health that, that is absolutely true there were all kinds of theories boys got it a little bit more than girls got it and the theory was that boys played harder and the harder you played once the polio virus entered your system uh, the worse the paralysis but again this was ju- these were just theories what we do know, though, is that it did appear in uh, largely in all neighborhoods, but better neighborhoods, um, higher socioeconomic neighborhoods seem to be hit harder. And the primary effect was paralysis. That is correct. The paralysis would, would be like Roosevelt's, or it might vary? It would vary, but generally it, there might be some arm paralysis. There, there would be complete leg paralysis, in other words, that you simply could not... You would be in a wheelchair for the rest. Well, the of the, life. the the probable, arguably the greatest living violinist had it. That is correct. You told me you saw Pro. Yes, that's right. That is absolutely and, and he right. goes on to the stage. That is uh, right. With, uh, with crutches. That is right. And and there there are some people even worse who had bulbar polio, and that was the polio that affected the diaphragm. And they, you know, we have cases where people have lived in iron lungs for thirty, forty, and fifty years. So, uh, I I don't want to be. Uh dark here, but what does it mean to live in, a, in an iron lung? Well, an iron lung is a contraption where your entire body is put into this. It really almost looks like a coffin with your head sticking out. And what the iron lung does through differences in air pressure is actually to open and close your diaphragm and to breathe for you. And you are stuck in there uh, basically virtually the entire day for your entire life. Now, the iron lung had been built as a way of helping polio patients just get better after a couple of weeks and months and or you would die and in most cases that happened one way or the other but there are cases of people still in iron lungs today who had polio fifty years ago and the and the iron lung has not developed beyond this this coffin like it, it, it has not Dennis because after the mid nineteen fifties when the polio vaccine came in there were virtually no new cases of polio. There are people, I, I'm, I'm sorry to be fixated on this, sure. I really am, I feel silly almost, but my heart breaks. There are people yes. who have been in this iron lung with only their head out for 30 years? That is absolutely correct. Um, and, and one of the problems is... Are their arms out? No, no, your arms are not out. You just, just from the neck above, and you, you look into a mirror 
above you. You're lying flat on your back, and that gives you a sense of what the west. So, isn't their whole body aren't all their muscles atrophy? They are muscles atrophy. They try to take them out, and they try to work them for very short periods by putting them on a temporary respirator. But in most cases, um, you know, they're you will die in an iron lung after a certain number of years, but there's some people who have defied the odds. And the problem now is that there are just no parts for these iron lungs because they are almost contraptions from, from another era. Because there's no disease that has that same effect, is that it? That is pretty much correct, yes. Yes, that is. that. I mean, iron lungs are used um, if you're asphyxiated, uh, you know, if you're in some sort of... Uh, uh, you know, place where you've been denied oxygen for a while. Uh, okay, I understand. Now, let me ask you, did, were other countries as affected as the United States? No, no. The United States was the most affected. Israel was affected to some degree, uh, Western Europe, Canada, Scandinavia, but the United States was the main... After, Why? It was the cleanest? That, that, that appears to be correct, yes. How ironic. Yeah. And the United States, Dennis, was the place where virtually all of the research took place and all of the money was raised. So that's why I call it an American story. This, the, the, the most extraordinary thing about this story is that the government played no role in this. This was all done through voluntary uh, contributions and through scientists who were hired and given grants by the National Foundation, or known as the March of Dimes. By the National Foundation, known as the March of Dimes. Yes, it was the National Foundation for Infantile Paralysis, but everyone knew it. Okay, was and that was private. It was completely private. Right, so wait, you're a professor at an at a distinguished American university, right. and you are denying that the government played a role in something good. I am. I am fully denying it. And, oh, <laughs> although wow. I am just saying, you know, it was a different. This is a moment. Era. This is a moment was, to celebrate. Go ahead. A, I couldn't agree with you. It was a different year at that time, and there were no red states and blue states, and it became a national crusade in which everyone would give a dime or a quarter or something or march for polio. Uh, everything we know today about how charities are run with poster children and mothers' marches against polio began with the March of Dimes, and they raised hundreds of millions of dollars to help polio patients, but also to fund the research that would bring us the vaccine that essentially... Well, and of course, polio. that's a major part of your book, and that's what I want to get to now. Mm-hmm. Let me just, uh, let me, for the sake of speed, I'll just summarize some of the calls. Uh, Lee wants to know, uh, he said, I was told I had a mild case of polio. Is there such a thing as post-polio? There is. There is. Post-polio syndrome does appear to affect about 30 to 40 percent of people who had polio uh, in the 1950s. And it, do- it doesn't mean that the virus has come back. What it does mean, or appears to mean, is that the muscles and nerve endings that compensated for those who were killed in, you know, by the polio virus have now essentially worn out, and, uh, and people are now getting the same symptoms 30, 40 years later. And it's, it's absolutely tragic. It's almost like getting polio again. Uh, Lynn said uh, uh, about hearing a theory that ice cream compromised the body, made you more susceptible to polio. Did you ever uh, hear about that? Uh, yes, I did, and it's uh, it's it's one of these uh, urban legend old wives. Tales. I heard it was only true about vanilla. 
Yeah, exactly. I just want to right. say. And yeah. butter pecan. And yeah. butter, absolutely. Right, yeah. Uh, Pam wants to know if there's a blood test to determine if you have polio. Well, they're, they're really, I mean, you could find polio virus in your blood if you did, but it's not a blood test. All you have to do basically is vaccinate. All right. Um, I mean, that's the key, vaccinate. When we come back, we will find out uh, about the, the men and one woman who is not celebrated. And the cure, not the cure, excuse me, the vaccine for polio in Polio, an American Story. David Oshinsky, the author and my guest. The phone number 18Prager776, an American disease, essentially, and an American cure or an American vaccine. Coming up. You are listening to the best of the Dennis Prager Show. You're listening to the Dennis Prager Show. Utterly fascinating story of a polio in the United States, how it was conquered, and that it afflicted, it still is so fascinating, it afflicted the wealthier because they were cleaner and somehow undermines a little bit the cleanliness is next to godliness because cleanliness was next to polio in this case. Is there any other disease you know of, uh, Professor Oshinsky, who is the author of Polio, an American Story? Is there any other disease wherein cleanliness was subversive and not helpful? It's, it's really hard to say, Dennis. It, I mean, there, there are theories today that even things like, um, you know, di- uh, you know uh, childhood um, diseases involving the digestive tract and the like, that it's very, very good for them to build up antibodies. Mm-hmm. Um, once the maternal antibodies are gone at a very, very young age, mm. and that somehow that, you know, over, over scrubbing and, and too much sanitation really does affect the immune system. But no, I, I don't think there's anything quite like polio in that respect. And it's still a theory. It's just a theory. But I think it's a theory that makes a lot of sense. That that's really the way you do explain why it happened in the United States. Let me just get a caller here whose father was in an iron lung. It just, mm-hmm. unfortunately, it mm-hmm. still fascinates me. Anne in Denver, hi. Dennis Prager and Professor Oshinsky, hi. Hi, Dennis. I'm glad to talk to you. Thank I you. lived through this whole uh, story that the professor is talking about. There were, nine, there were eight children in my family. My father was very successful in the insurance business, and he was the president of the March of Dimes. Here in Denver. And we worked just uh, as we were little, but we worked all the time filling up these little cards with dimes and quarters and so on. And then my father got polio. But he didn't get just one kind. He got the bulbar spinal polio. He got both of them. So he was in the iron lung. He was six foot four, and they had to make a special iron lung for him in um, New York someplace or New Jersey. And they barely, barely kept him alive until the iron lung arrived. And he, he lived like that in the hospital uh, for four years. And then we brought him home for some nice friends from Chicago. We w- by the way, everything was wiped out. He was, we were going to buy a new house and everything. He lost everything in one week. In one week, and my mother was pregnant with the ninth. And we were on billboards all over the city because of our large family. And there was always a bitter 
fight going between the uh, welfare and the March of Dimes and who was going to pay the bills. But I'm telling you, we had a wonderful childhood because my father accepted this so beautifully. He died in 1961. He got polio at the age of 42, and he died when he was 51. And that was very unusual. Was he in the iron lung? Well, for how long was he? He, in the iron lung for four years, and then we brought him home and built a room on. We had our own generator. We had everything that people would donate. John Kennedy came to see him. Lawrence Welk came to see him. I mean, he was a very, very bright man. And they used to say you'd walk in our house a Democrat and walk out a Republican because <laughs> he, could, he was on the radio all the time, but he had to breathe like this. He could only talk when he exhaled. And then after we took him out of the iron lung, he was on the chest respirator and the rocking bed, Mm -hmm. which forced air into his lungs, in and out of his lungs. And we lived like that for nine years. We always said it was one year of suffering, my dad, for for each one of us us kids. (laughs) And my mother took care of him 24 hours a day. She never left the house. Uh, What a a story. What a story. Does that, uh, is that something you're familiar with, David Oshinsky, or is this just a, a, a nice added story to your story i i think well i'm not familiar with that specific case Naturally, but I, do ha- yeah. I do have a chapter in my book that talks about people who spent long periods of time like her dad in an iron lung and obviously he came from a very loving family and he was a very courageous man right and that certainly made it easier but you can just imagine sure. you know the personal hell that that uh. man lived through hour by hour or, or the hell of those who didn't have such a loving family. Yes. Or didn't have a family. Yes. Exactly. Uh, it's, it's, it's painful to think about. All right, let's get to the, uh, b- because the hour goes fast, let's mm-hmm. go to the issue of vaccines. So did, did the country realize pretty early on, did, did the medical establishment realize this is not something we're going to find a cure for, we better put our efforts in a vaccine? Yes. The, the March of Dimes was extraordinary in in sort of funneling money into medical research and they realized immediately it had to be a vaccine and what was extraordinary dennis is that they really didn't care whether the person was jewish or gentile male or female they wanted the best most focused researchers and what is quite extraordinary is that in the polio vaccine you know jonas salk albert sabin and hillary kaprowski were all jewish and a number of the people who really put the building blocks together for them, like... All right, hold on. I want to hear that. We'll be back in a moment. Portions of the following program may contain pre-recorded material. You are listening to the best of the Dennis Prager Show. Welcome to the Dennis Prager Show, where we do talk about everything in life. And here is an example. Here is a subject I have never discussed. I actually now have to search for subjects I've never discussed, but I've never discussed this. And that is, which is particularly odd since it is rather central to my endeavor with you, it's the human voice without which I would not have a radio show, obviously. And I I don't know why it has been so neglected, not only on my show, obviously, but it's been neglected as a a source of study, as as an object of study by many authors. 
And finally, we do have a book on that very subject. It's titled The Human Voice, How This Extraordinary Instrument Reveals Essential Clues About Who We Are. And it was written, it is written by Ann Karf, and there's the P is not pronounced, correct? Well, the P actually is pronounced, but I really, I answer to almost anything, so... Don't oh, no, no, that. I want to do the correct thing. So it's Karpf? <laughs> it's Karpf, yes. All right, and Karpf, good. I, I, I don't like silent letters, so we're, I'm, I'm happy <laughs> that you told me that. Anne Karpf is a sociologist and columnist for The Guardian, and she's speaking to us from London. And I thank you for your time, and I thank you for your book. And there are claims made here that I find fascinating. Let me begin with... Through voice, our size, height, weight, physique, sex, age, and even occupation can be detected? I know. It it does seem quite uh, far-fetched, doesn't it? Particularly the occupation thing. But in fact, that was discovered quite a long time ago in the 1940s. Curiously enough, through the medium of radio, there was a famous study done in which radio listeners were asked to guess the occupation of various people they heard speaking over the radio, and they ranged from teachers to vicars to all kinds of different occupations and the accuracy rate was very high i mean obviously things like um age and height are are more obvious because well, wait wait how is height up have you ever seen me uh, no i haven't okay seen so me, so you're gonna ask me to guess all kinds of things about no, you from your voice um, you, you can no 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 that uh, it's a great experiment and I, I am curious can you can you do you have a sense of my height do I have a sense of your height? No, I don't. But then perhaps I'm, uh, you know, it's not that all individuals can always tell people's height from every voice. Um, I, I might be rather bad at detecting height in the voice. Right. In any I event, mean, you're saying that somebody trained could, but... but no, not cause... even trained. But if you take a large group of people and you um, make them listen to a large number of voices in certain studies, this is what's emerged. I mean, obviously, if you think about it, the voice is produced by a body, by, by cavities in bodies, um, you know, by the whole vocal apparatus. And obviously that's going to differ, that the, 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 the vocal folds are going to differ, um, the whole, the resonators, everything is going to differ depending on somebody's size. So it's not surprising that you can actually hear some of that. I mean, obviously the more you attune to it, <clears throat> the more you hear uh, um, age is is a, is a fairly obvious one. Yes, um, that's right. Sex is a fairly obvious one. Yep. Um, I think the I, I mean, another one that comes up is sexual orientation. Now that there, I think that generally refers to people who sound either very macho or very camp. I think on the whole, you know, you you can't always hear that. But the the, the studies are quite convincing, both on occupation and. Um, on sexual orientation. So well, I picked the one there. claim that I was I was dubious about I, because yeah. I, one of the most common reactions I get from people when they meet me after hearing me for years is that they were they were very surprised at my height, which, which is rather tall, and they didn't they didn't expect it. So it was it was it, it, it jolted me that one could in fact infer height from that. I I. Everything else made perfect sense, but I did. I did want to. I did want to challenge on that I'm one. I'm surprised. I'm surprised that you said that because I don't think you've got a, a, a tall, a tall voice, as it were. You don't, to me, sound like a, a, a terribly tall person. But, right, but um, but I am. That's that's the point. I'm, I'm yes. uh, in American terms. I'm six foot four. Oh wow! You yes. are tall. Yes. Well, yeah. that's my point. That that in in my case, I have found. In fact, I, people often say to me, "You have a short voice." <laughs> and and I and I don't even understand that. 
They hear you first of all when you're sitting down. I mean, I don't. I don't that's true. You walk around your studio. No, that's correct. I do. I am well, sitting. Yes. But also, you're a professional broadcaster, so your voice is a little bit different from, you know, the common or garden everyday voice. You're, you're trained to use your voice. You use it in a in a in a way that is slightly different from for most ordinary people. I, that's mm-hmm. the only explanation I, I can think of. But let me ponder that. I might come back to you with another explanation. On okay, that that, that's fine. But I, 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 I'll tell you one thing that fascinated me was that watching or just listening, I should say, to the voice, not even the words of a doctor, mm-hmm. you can predict much more accurately which doctors will be sued for malpractice. Yeah, that, that, I think that is a fascinating one. That was one particular study that found that. They took, and, and not just listening to kind of large stretches, they took 40-second segments of um, doctor-patient consultations between surgeons and patients, and they um, scrambled the words. So the words, you couldn't hear the words. You could only hear the tone of voice. And the accuracy rate of listeners, they could tell pretty accurately who had been most sued for malpractice. Now, the reason for that is, and this is, I think, the interesting part, what they heard in the voice was the degree of dominance or warmth in the voice. So, in other words, in some um, physicians, what they heard were people who really weren't very attentive um, to their patients and didn't really listen and didn't, you know, spoke in a rather um, imperious way, if you like. And in other ones, they heard a gentleness, a softness, a, a, um, a desire to communicate. And clearly, those kinds of patients, those kinds of uh, physicians, even if they're making mistakes, all human beings make mistakes, but they, they were more humane. So I suppose what emerges through that um, study is the degree of warmth, humanity, and engagement in someone's voice, which after all is a very crucial thing if you're dealing with the general public in, in, in this way. I have been told, and I'm so I can, I'm only personalizing this because I, I have information on this that that mm. that I can share with you uh, to vindicate your points. I am told so often that my voice, and I don't I don't even know know this. It's it's not I don't even take credit for this, but the power of a voice is is obviously something someone in my profession would 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 have to become aware of. And I am told frequently it, 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 that it has a soothing quality. Yeah. And I don't even I, know about it. I don't, you know, it doesn't soothe me. Well, you don't know about it because it's not a conscious thing. You're That's right, exactly, exactly. Automatically. But I think that it, it, it is, I mean, the, the, the whole question of the soothing voice is a very interesting one because, of course, if you think back to FDR and his fireside chats, I mean, one of the, one of the elements, not the only one, in, in his voice, I think, that made people feel so safe was that it was soothing, it was reassuring. So I think that the soothing voice, I mean, I interviewed someone, um, I I conducted 50 interviews in in the UK and the US. One of the British people I interviewed said that her father-in-law was a GP, uh, sorry, that's a a, a doctor, a general practitioner, a, a local doctor, and also a member of his local choir. And she said he was the most popular doctor in his general practice. So again, we come back to doctors. And she felt sure that it was because he had such a smooth, soothing voice that it immediately made the patients feel at ease. And she thought that possibly the fact that he sang in a choir, you know, he had, uh, he, he was very used to using his voice and, and, and exercising his voice. 
So I think, um, you know, in every profession, if you think about the teacher's voice, which is something we don't think about very often until it goes wrong, you know, when teachers lose their voice, which they do very frequently because uh, they they use it so much and they often strain it. But the, the, the role that the teacher's voice plays in helping kids learn, in helping them feel confident and safe, is enormous. I don't think we've begun to explore it, really. But what is there, what, can one do anything about it? I mean, isn't it innate? Well, that is a very interesting question because most people, uh, it's partly why I wrote the book, most people have a, a sense of the, my voice is just a sort of something given to me. It's something I have no control over. It's like, you know, the shape of my wrist or the, the, the I don't know, the turn of my ankle. Um, and that isn't, in fact, the case. I mean, obviously... Our voices are partly produced by our bodies, and and there's not that much we can do about them. Out, you know, we might try and lose weight or whatever, but on the whole, um, but our voice is also the result of our upbringing, the country and culture we're born into, um, our psychological state, and in fact, particularly I would say over the last five years, there's been an enormous ten years perhaps enormous emphasis on changing the voice. You know, it's, it's gone along with changing the face and changing the self and how you present yourself and all these... And there, and there are ways to do it? Sorry? There are ways to do that? Well, you can certainly change your voice, yes. Now, the question is whether you impose a change from without, which I think... All right, all right. Well, we, have, we right. have to take a break here for, for commercials in America. And then we will return with Ann Karp of The Guardian and a sociologist... And she says that women's voices are getting lower, that and much more. listening to the best of the Dennis Prager Show. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to the Dennis Prager Show. I'm very self-conscious right now because the subject is the human voice. And after all, that is pretty much all you get of me <laughs> for hours a day. <laughs> and, and so I'm, I'm very conscious now of, of this vehicle. The book is titled The Human Voice. It is by a British sociologist and columnist for The Guardian, Anne Karp. So you know how to spell it now, since none of the letters are silent. And Anne Karp, we were talking about the ability of people now to change voices as they would, for example, get get some sort of cosmetic surgery. Yes, a sort of uh, like a vocal makeover. Yeah, how, how, do you, how is that done? Well, it's done. I mean, it can actually be done surgically. There is such a thing as a voice lift, you know, which is the the, the surgical procedure of the vocal folds. But, of course, that is pretty extreme. I mean, most people would just go to a speech and language therapist or a voice coach and actually have some classes and change their breathing and how they articulate, how they project. Although... I mean, the the point is that none of us just have one single voice. We all have a whole range of voices. Um, the performance artist Laurie Anderson once said she thought we had 50 voices. And if you hear people, if you hear somebody you know on the phone, you can pretty much tell who they're talking to. If you know that person intimately, you can and, tell and you could tell that they're on the phone and not talking to someone in the room. Absolutely. And then you can often tell who they're speaking to just by the kind of voice they use. 
you know, you can tell if they're talking to a colleague or a relative or a lover or a child by the tone of voice and the way they speak. Or a so woman we, or a woman with her mother. That, that's her, an entirely different voice. Her mother, particularly yes. me with mine. Yeah, there you um, go. <laughs> so we, all, we don't have just one voice. We have a variety of voices. You can change the voice from the outside, but you can, and you can also change the voice from the inside. So in other words, when one changes and grows emotionally, psychologically, very often that is reflected in, in our voices. The problem, I think, with, with imposing a voice from the outside, whereas it can improve people who have a speech defect, for example, it can improve their voices. If, it's, if, if, if somebody's trying to give you another person's voice, as it were, it, it, you can sound like a kind of ventriloquist dummy. It can sound a very artificial thing. And I give you the, the, the terrible example of Margaret Thatcher, the former British Prime Minister, who suffered from the problems that a lot of women politicians suffer from, namely that they were not taken seriously, they weren't considered authoritative, and they were considered that they had sort of high-pitched, screechy voices. Now, Margaret Thatcher tried to change her voice, um, and she succeeded in lowering it quite considerably. The problem is that in so doing, she interfered with the natural cues that let her, the person she was talking to know when to interrupt. I mean, when I'm talking to you, if I suddenly drop my voice and go a bit slower like that, you'll take that as a cue to come in. Now, if I talk like this the whole time and in a very artificial way, you won't know when to come in. That was good. That was good. You, that was very effective to show how you can change your voice. Well, you, 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 well, you, what you just, can, yeah. can do it. So Margaret Thatcher actually was interrupted in television interviews more oh, than most other prime ministers oh. because she had, she'd interfered with what I, I, I call the natural energy in the voice. I mean, the voice is a natural living phenomenon, and it wants to go where it wants to. It doesn't want to be pushed down there the whole time, if you see what I mean. It, it, it wants to roam. So I think there is a problem in, in trying to push your voice too much into somewhere it doesn't want to Now, go. you write, though, that women's voices have, in fact, gotten got, gone down in pitch? Well, there is, there is one major Australian study which showed that over the past 50 years, women's voices had deepened significantly. And, of course, the question then is why? You know, is it because there's some sort of physiological change? Are, are women's bodies different now? Is it because women have been entering the workforce in much, much greater numbers and because voices, men's voices have been considered more authoritative, so women are trying to sound more like men? Um, I mean, there are all kinds of possible explanations. I suspect that some of it is, is women's voices changing by themselves and some of it is women forcing their voices deeper and sometimes causing damage in the process. In order to be taken more seriously? Yes, yes. And also because a, a, a deeper voice is now considered a, a, a rather sexy voice. I mean, if you cast back to Marilyn Monroe's time, it was very attractive to be very breathy and very high. Now, we would prefer a much deeper voice. And certainly, if I think of the women who are successful in British broadcasting, most of them have fairly deep, you know, solid voices. I, I, I'm just but, 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 but not in any way mistakenly masculine. Not masculine, no, but but really quite um, interesting. Quite substantial voices, I would say. Is the is the woman with the higher pitched voice taken less seriously? You feel that? Oh, undoubtedly. And and what is fascinating about this is even in Japan, 
And I say even because Japanese women's voices have been a, a, an extraordinary thing. They, they have been higher than women in most other cultures because it was a very admired thing in, in Japan for a woman to have a high-pitched voice. And, um, it, you know, women used to push their voices artificially high. In fact, one person compared it to, to the Chinese process. Um, yes, a feet binding. Of, a foot binding, yes. Yeah, yeah. Pushing their voice high. And then suddenly, about sort of seven or eight years ago, that began to change. And Japanese women broadcasters started to push their voices deeper. And, and it seems to be a spreading phenomenon. So even in Japan, the kind of cultural ideal has changed and women are, you know, desiring deeper voices. So this seems to be at the moment a fairly universal phenomenon. There's another aspect to, uh, you mentioned Franklin D. Roosevelt and his soothing voice, which I, I was not alive at the time, but mm. I, I have heard it. But you note that he spoke slower mm. than almost all other politicians. Mm. Mm. Is that soothing? Well, it is interesting that about what constitutes a powerful voice. I mean, I in, have interviewed British and American politicians and, and, and people who listen to them, and some have said that actually someone speaking slowly and um, softly is actually a sort of demonstration of power because it, it, it's forcing people to really pay attention to you and really listen to you very carefully. So it's almost like an exercise in power. I mean, in FDR's case, I think it was showing, it was showing a, a nation not to be panicked. It's showing that somebody was in charge and somebody was in control and there was no need to panic and um, there was time. I think, you know, that, that all kinds of, of um, subtle messages go out in our voices and people who speak slowly do indicate that. Now, that, that I'm about to completely contradict myself because there also have been a number of studies showing that people who speak um, fast are generally thought to be more intelligent and more knowledgeable than people who speak slowly. And speaking, I think slow, speaking slower is a gamble. Yes. But if what you say is deliberate, intelligent, and interesting... It's very effective. Well, I think you're, I think you're absolutely spot on there. Although, All right, hold on, hold on. I was spot on. We're going to take a, take a, take a, a moment break. And we are, again, I want to mention your book, after all, that's helpful to you and helpful to the reader. It's fascinating. The Human Voice by Ann Karp. Take your calls. 1-8-Prager-776. This is The Soothing Dennis Prager Show. are listening to the best of the Dennis Prager Show. Hello, everybody. Dennis Prager here. I am absolutely fascinated by the subject, the human voice, which I've never dealt with before. And there is a new book titled exactly that, The Human Voice, How This Extraordinary Instrument Reveals Essential Clues About Who We Are. It is written by sociologist Ann Karp, who is also a columnist for The Guardian in the United Kingdom. And I have, I, 
We have really a full board here from around America who want to talk to you. So I'm going to take some calls. But I, I there is one other aspect to all of this that I that I wanted to raise, and that is your claim that the that three quarters of the body is involved in making the voice possible. It is because if you think of something like if you sprain your ankle, that throws out your posture. You might start limping. And so the way you hold yourself is changed, and that affects the voice. Or take another example, teenage girls who might be self-conscious about developing breasts, about their chest. And so they hunch over, and they use their arms. They, they, they fold their arms a lot. It, it's quite a characteristic pose of teenage girls. And that, again, affects their posture, how they're holding themselves, and affects the voice so if you think about it, I mean, it's interesting. We don't have one single organ in the body that produces the voice. It is really the synchronization of a huge number of different parts of the body and different muscle groups. So it's, um, it's, it's one of the many things that make it, in my view, a, a most fascinating subject. Well, and to, to make it clear about how much we do think, rightly or wrongly, we know about a person by their voice, think of the people who do lose their ability to speak and speak through one of those, what about an amplifying machines? Yeah. yeah. And, and we don't have a sense of their personality. Yes. Is that yes. right? I think that's absolutely right. And and the, the loss to them is... is is incalculable. Mm, mm. Absolutely incalculable. I never thought of it that way, because all I think of is how happy I am for them that they could at least speak that way. Yes. Well, there was a British journalist called John Diamond who had cancer of the throat, and um, he lost the ability to talk. He was a very active broadcaster, and he wrote very eloquently about what it felt like um, to be sort of exiled, really, from the, the social world. I mean, he, mm. he could go places, but he couldn't communicate, and it was a most terrible loss. By the same token, I argue in my book that you can't really know someone until you've heard them talk. I mean, you can communicate mm. via email, um, via letter, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but unless you've heard um, the, the, the texture of their voice, the grain of the voice, mm. you really don't know what they're like as a person, I think. All right, let's take calls here. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Ted. Hi, Ted. You're on with Ann Karp and Dennis Prager. Yes, good morning. Hi. I wanted to ask the doctor, she just mentioned teenage girls. Uh, I happen to be a college professor, and speech communication is my field. And I noticed about 15 years ago a change in uh, the voices of of many of my students, and it seemed to be a trend that their voices got very scratchy, Mm. and not just when they were out uh, celebrating the night before, but it seemed like they were scratchy all the time. And then I noticed about five years after that that a lot of the voiceover artists uh, doing commercials uh, the female ones, their voices were scratchy, and I was just wondering if the doctor had noticed this and uh, what she might make out of it. Well, first of all, I should say I'm not a doctor. I'm a sociologist, but I'm not a doctor. Um, but um, I think that that's interesting. I think teenage girls' voices are very, very interesting, and they have changed a lot over, over time. I mean, I think it's a period of transition anyway for girls, and um, and there are um, writers, American writers, who have suggested that what happens to teenagers at um, adolescence, teenage to girls at adolescence, is that they go from being very free with their voices to being silenced. Now, I, I'm the mother of a teenage girl, and I can tell you if that's happened, it certainly hasn't happened to her. Um, but I think a, a, a self-consciousness does enter into girls um, 
at, at puberty and, and through adolescence. And this is impacting on the voice. I mean, whether how, how universal a phenomenon, I don't know. Uh, when, and and the impact is. is what? That they, they want a lower voice? They don't want to sound too girlish? Well, their voices are in transition from the kind of very free girly voices to something much more self-conscious. And in the same way that they become very aware, over-aware, I would say, of, of their bodies. And, 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 and Right, but we all know what they want. They, they want a thinner body. Okay, fine. Yeah. But what do they want voice-wise? Well, they want, I think it's, a, it's part of the transition to a, a, a sexual adult. They both want to sound sexual, but they also are quite scared of it, I think. So I think there are all kinds of... Oh, fascinating. All right. You know, tensions we, in, in, that, that emerge. When we come back, i got to take a break. And when we come back, I want to ask you about Europeans listening to President Bush's voice. We return on The Dennis Prager Show, the book, The Human Voice. are listening to the best of the Dennis Prager Show. The power of the human voice, it's something we don't reflect on much. I sure should, since I, I, it's the essence of the way I make a living. And yet I haven't until really speaking to Ann Karp, K-A-R-P-F, whose book is The Human Voice, how this extraordinary instrument reveals essential clues about who we are is the subtitle. She's in London, where she is a sociologist and columnist for The Guardian. Do you have any reactions or thoughts to European reactions to the voice of President George W. Bush? Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, if you think about American presidents in general, um, the late Arthur Miller said that um, to be successful as a politician nowadays, you had to be an actor. And, of course, um, one of the most successful American presidents was an actor, Ronald Reagan, who had a very effective, skillful use of the voice. He really knew how to use his voice to connect with, with, uh, with the public. And um, uh, Bill Clinton is another American president who I think was very effective in his use of voice, even though by all the, the strict medical criteria he shouldn't be, because his voice was often, frankly, quite damaged and very hoarse. And yet he, he, he knew he could use it to make a connection. Now, George Bush is a completely other kind of voice. I think he, he has, what, is, what he does very successfully is he sounds like he's a kind of genial kind of guy, the kind of person you'd like to have around for a barbecue or go and have a beer with, which is a very important quality, which neither Al Gore nor John Kerry had, and I think really told against them. But what I also hear in George Bush's voice is the number of times he pauses. I mean, he he really hardly says more than half a sentence at a time without pausing quite a long time. And sometimes it sounds as if as if he's trying to ward off the panic. Um, so w- ward, he, ward off the panic. Well, it sounds like a person who is not. I mean, it's not. He doesn't. He hasn't got a, a, a Roosevelt kind of voice. You know what I think it is? I'd like you to react to this, or at least just consider it, because I have been with him a number of times privately. Yes. And he is very different uh, in his speaking 
privately than he is publicly. And I believe that he has a deep fear, and he may not even know this, and I may be totally wrong, but this is my belief. He has a deep fear, it may not be the right word, but, but, but concern at least, with the press taking one sentence or one word and using it to attack him. Well, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I, 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 I'm, I'm certain you're right. I mean, also, all that fun about Bushisms and all of that, I, I mean, what that, when I talked about panic, what I, what I was getting at was some kind of fear that, you know, he, he, he's quite anxious. He, he says a group of words in, uh, at a go, and then he pauses. Um, I mean, this is not somebody who is really relaxed and comfortable um, broadcasting or in public speaking in the way that Reagan and Clinton both clearly mm-hmm. were. Mm-hmm. I mean, they thrived on it. You, you could tell, and, and right. you heard that in the voice. Yep. And, I, and I don't think um, George W. Bush is, is, right. is, 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 in that, is in that category. All right, some calls here. Los Angeles, California, James. Hello, James. You're on with Ann Karp and Dennis Prager. Yes, Dennis, a long-time listener, back to religion on the line, first-time caller. I'm so uh, honored to be on the line with you. Thank, thank you. you sir. And mm-hmm. thank you for this topic. I'm a voice actor. I make my living with my voice. And the main thing I do with it is I do other people. I'm usually impersonating other actors, or I do a lot of cartoons, and I'm the voice of Fred Flintstone, which, by the way, I draw from you. I mean this as a compliment. You have a very similar tone to the actor Alan Reed, who performed as Fred Flintstone originally. I don't know if anybody's ever told you that. No, nobody has. I'm going to. I'm going to pay attention now. Yeah. But, can you do? But, can you do a little uh, voice acting for us? Well, sure. Um, Fred Flintstone is Bonnie. Well, my yeah, do. You know, it's that was good. The thing is, is I'm I'm five four and about 115 pounds, and when I walk into the room to do a Fred Flintstone job, they're like, "This isn't the right guy." Because my natural voice is, is higher, and, you know, it's, it's more like the crackly voice that other people have talked about on the show. So I'm wondering if there's been any study on that as to people that do what I do and what, what makes us up and what makes us different than in that ability. That, you know, you, I James. find that totally fascinating, and I'll tell you why. Because my sister is a British voiceover actress. She does exactly the same as you. And, in fact, she's done it in the States as well. She, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this on air. I think I am. She's been the voice of Whirlpool. Um, and uh, she can age from, I would say, two years old to 92 with her voice. Uh, I, think it's a, I think it's the most fascinating thing because this idea that we just have one voice. I mean, people like you and uh, James and my sister are absolute proof that it's not the case, that people who are particularly sensitive can do hundreds of different voices. They can, they can do gymnastics with their voice. They can turn themselves into someone else. I actually interviewed uh, a, a, the leading British satirical impressionist, Rory Bremner, and I said, how do you do what you do? And he said, actually, people have tested me and my impersonations, and I sound very different. I actually am very, sound very different from the people I am imitating. But because I take one feature, one dominant feature, hmm. and I exaggerate it, I sound like them, even though I'm not really at all like them. So it's a sort of, um, it's not an optical trick, it's a kind of vocal, oral trick that you do, because you've got incredible uh, flexibility. And I think, you know, we should all become a little bit more like you. All righty. Thank you, James. Bren in Dallas, Texas. Hi, Dennis Prager and Ann Karp. 
this, are you calling for me? Yes, Brenda. Oh, if you're Brenda in Dallas. Yes, yeah. I am. I'm 41 years old, and I've always been self-conscious about my voice, mm-hmm. which hasn't seemed to have changed since I was about five years old. Hmm. And I've always thought that this has been a handicap to me, fearing that I was not being taken seriously. I am a teacher and lecturer at a university, Hmm. and rather than being concerned about the content of my lessons on the first day, I anticipate uh, the hurdle that I'm going to have to make to gain respect and control of the classes. That's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. <laughs> We're going to get a reaction when we come back. That, that it, it was a great example, actually, of, of the power of voice that we, we just, I, I guess we just don't, don't pay enough attention to. The book is The Human Voice. Final segment coming up. You are listening to The Dennis Prager Show. listening to the best of the Dennis Prager Show. I usually reserve the final segment of an interview, and that is assuming the interview has gone this far uh, for myself, but I, I just, uh, I want to get every every minute I can from Ann Carp. This is just fascinating subject, The Human Voice, which is the name of her book. And and, and let me go back for a moment to uh, Bren. Bren in Dallas, you there? Yes, I am. Uh, you do have a, a child's voice. It, it is it is fascinating, and, and and I wonder, do you? And you've been very forthright about it. And here you are, a college lecturer. Yes. And do you find that uh, it, it does impede your ability at the very beginning, but then you just simply establish your credibility, or is it an ongoing, in your view, liability? No, it's not ongoing. It, it is at the beginning, and especially I have also taught. Uh, younger children, and children love me. They, for some reason, they they think I'm a big kid. But it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is your height? I'm five six. Mm-hmm. So I'm not small, just like the um, and I'm athletic too. So I'm not skiddy, and um, just the man that called earlier with the voice of Fred Flintstone. I'm the opposite. He's tiny and I'm large. <laughs> well, it is. thank you so much for your, your call there. It just substantiates so much of what you've been saying, Ann Carp, and, and, and people just... I, well, it, that is such an interesting case, if I can just comment on that quickly. Thank you so much for, for sharing your experience. I think that so many thoughts come to mind about this this. A charming voice we just heard. First of all, the prejudice that we have and the stereotyping of voices that we associate particular voices with particular kinds of people and we make judgments sometimes very falsely and misleadingly. Um, I don't know if it's any consolation to Bren, but um, our voices, women's voices do deepen as we get older. So her voice will automatically get lower. But um, in the meantime, I, I, the, the, the things that really spring to mind for me are the connection between the voice and the psyche. And I don't know whether there is anything, and I don't want to analyze somebody who's been so kind in offering themselves on air. But 
um, it is an interesting avenue to explore what um, a deeper voice might, the meaning might be for an individual that might be holding them back. And the other thing to say is that uh, certain um, voice problems are quite easily remedied by um, speech and language therapists and voice coaches. So it may, I don't know if your caller has, has tried any of that um, because it may be a problem that is fairly easily resolved if she finds it such a problem. I mean, yeah, it well, apparently she, it's developed, I'll bet, a lot of strength in her. Yes. And, prob- and perhaps even made her pursue a, an intellectual career. Yes, Which indeed. otherwise maybe indeed. not. Anne Why Karp, should everyone sound the same? That's the right. Sometimes All right, we've got to go, Ann Karp. I thank you. It's been, it's been a total delight. Well, thank you. It's been fascinating. Thank you. Ann Karp, The Human Voice, Christina, Suzanne, Pat, Bill, Denny, I wish I could get to you. This is Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager here. Thanks for listening to the Daily Dennis Prager Podcast. To hear the entire three hours of my radio show, commercial-free, every single day, become a member of PragerTopia. You'll also get access to 15 years' worth of archives, as well as the daily show prep. Subscribe at PragerTopia.com. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.